Welcome to episode 105 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for May 18th, 2020. Recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cromkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC podcast is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and our newest sponsor, Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Joining me from our studio in Spencerport is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And joining us is Lori Rodericks from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. She is the Director of Clinical Services for AHS. <laughs> From Rochester, Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services for AHS. Um, Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant for AHS. And in Atlanta, Georgia, Zach Kaleritis, Financial Consultant for AHS. Sorry, Lori was all of a sudden. <laughs> two, was, we had two different two angles boxes, of Lori. <laughs> and I was, I totally threw me. I it really threw you off. Get my best side. Sorry, I was changing <laughs> the computer. Multiplying. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Lori really wanted to be on today. <laughs> sorry. Oh, oh no problem. Me. So I'm sorry. And so. just as we were going live, I got an email from uh, somebody that I had to correct. <laughs> uh, one of those urgent things. So um, you were telling me earlier that we've got a lot of downloads. I know right? twenty thousand downloads we hit um, this last week, and not only that, but we uh, our numbers have, are well over double what they were pre um, pre coronavirus. So we're yeah. over like four about three fifty to four hundred episode uh, downloads per episode. So uh, we do apologize that we've been running. Um, well, it's been about two weeks since the last podcast that we've done here. Uh, we will be speeding them up again, uh, but as you know, there's been a lot going on, and uh, interestingly, we haven't had a lot of news to announce um, because <laughs> everything has kind of been a holding pattern, uh, and we have been concentrating, of course, on the virtual conferences lately, which are much more important as we uh, get everybody geared up. So, um, and, and by the way, that was a long list of, uh, of sponsors. sponsors. I, I know. know. I know. Uh, we uh, we have picked up a number of sponsors uh, during this time frame, and uh, we're very pleased to uh, to welcome all of them and thank you for the for the support of this program. It's uh, it, it's uh, a much needed service, I think, and uh, certainly a lot of this, uh, a lot of things have uh, come out as a result of this uh, podcast over the last um, three months. How how long have we been doing this? Anybody know? Uh-uh. Forever. It seems that way. Um. I did want to kind of update, you know, remind everybody that we have uh, done a lot of virtual conferences, and many of these are very important. Um, and you can access information about these virtual conferences on the website at uh, ASCPodcast.com. Um, excuse me. So uh, the first one was the ASC Infection Prevention Coordinator training that Lori did about three weeks ago. Uh, it was a, a six-hour program to prepare infection preventionists for their job as an infection preventionist in an ambulatory surgery center and also for existing infection preventionists to kind of uh, up their skills a little bit or just to kind of keep updated on what's going on. And there was a little bit of a concentration uh, on uh, the post-COVID-19 world. We, we know things are, are changing and of course there'll be a heavy focus on this. Um, then we uh, did the uh, It's a New World Conference 2020, which was a two-day conference with uh, about, uh, how many, what did we end up with? Fourteen and a half hours, I believe, of, uh, 
of uh, AEUs for uh, uh, cast credentialed individuals. And it was a, a great conference meant to kind of replace those uh, conferences that we've all kind of missed uh, during this time frame. And uh, we had a lot of fun with it. And that's available also on our, our website. Uh, and then we did ASC Roadmap to Recovery. Got a lot of uh, rave reviews. That was by far our most uh, uh, highly uh, attended conference uh, where we uh, helped prepare everybody for um, the you know starting up again elective procedures and helping people understand that it's not just a matter of uh, – uh, just not uh, just a matter of opening the doors and letting people in. And and lastly, the 2020 uh, ASC Anato- uh, annual mandatory education program uh, that is uh, uh, that we uh, uh, developed in order to kind of take advantage of the uh, this time frame we have right now, where we're uh, opening, uh, uh, we're uh, getting prepared to start uh, cases, but haven't yet uh, started them necessarily, uh, where we might have employees on hand that are. Uh, um, uh, you know, we could do that a- mandatory education earlier rather than uh, doing it a little bit later on when we're going to be a lot busier. And then we have two conferences coming up. Lori's going to talk about one of them in a, in a few minutes, uh, infection uh, control and in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And then in June, uh, that's going to be on Wednesday, right, Lori? Yeah, yep. the 20th. And then uh, the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar, uh, which is coming up in June. And again, all uh, information about those. And that's a two-day conference also. Uh, we're going to be doing that with um, uh, Christina Benton. And uh, so for more information, go to ASCpodcast.com. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the recent news. Uh, talking about virtual conferences, the, uh, a- uh, the ASCA 2020 Virtual Conference and ASCA Expo is going to be happening live July 9th and 10th and available on demand until October 31st. For more than two decades, ASCA's annual conference has remained the premier can't-miss event for the ASC community, and this year's virtual conference is no different. Just like ASCA's in-person events, the ASCA 2020 Virtual Conference and Expo offers nearly 50 educational sessions, access to more than 100 exhibitors, and unique virtual networking opportunities with hundreds of your peers. Uh, for more information, go to ASCassociation.org for more information. Uh, it's a little redundant there. Uh, I just recorded my uh, two sessions. So the way this works, unlike uh, our uh, virtual conferences, which we record live, um, the ASCA 2020 virtual conference, all of the sessions are recorded, and then they will play them live. And then those of us that uh, presented will be uh, texting answers. Uh, so in other words, people will be watching it and then typing in questions, and then I have to answer in real time as the conference is going on. That's going to be interesting to see how that goes, especially for somebody like me who can't type that well. But we'll see. Um, but uh, it, it was it was actually fun. I had I enjoyed recording it. Uh, and uh, surprisingly enough, even though there weren't, uh, I didn't have an audience. And as everybody knows, I like to have an audience. Um, but it, uh, I, you know, I think it's going to uh, be a very good session. I, I, I still don't think it's quite as good as, you know, when you got live questions being thrown at you and you're being interrupted and, you know, you're getting that instantaneous feedback as you're presenting the session. I think any of us that uh, do this for a living uh, know that, that feeling, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how well it goes. But definitely... Uh, take an opportunity to, uh, to pick up. This is, this is really, I mean, 50 educational programs, uh, you know, within a two day uh, time frame, and then the ability to revisit them, uh, over the next, I think it's another three or four months after that, uh, is definitely a big advantage. So, 
Um, anybody else have any comments about Ask a 2020? Lori, are you doing any presentations for 2020 or is it just Christina and me? I couldn't remember. Yeah. No. <laughs> Not this year. No, no, no. I know Lori's on the education committee. And, I, and, and by the way, you probably noticed one glaring, uh, two glaring people that are missing. Uh, Alex is on the road. He, he, uh, Went on the road again today, first time out of the house for quite a while. I go on the road next Tuesday. And uh, Ann Geyer is not with us today. Uh, I have no idea where Ann is. Uh, so we'll, we'll find out in a couple of days, I guess. But uh, we do miss them and uh, their feedback. And I haven't heard from Jim either, so we don't have any – we have no feedback today on uh, life safety. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to kind of give a quick update on Hospital Without Walls program. You might remember during um, the uh, – the issues of the uh, the 1135 waiver, um, the hospital without walls program was one of those things that was allowed under the uh, uh, under the waiver, which would have allowed a surgery center to uh, request to become a hospital for a limited period of time. Uh, we had one of our clients uh, interested in it. Then we looked into the situation, told them the, uh, uh, the challenges that they would face in doing this, and they decided against it. As I understand it in talking to uh, the ASC Association, about 12 ambulatory surgery centers did apply and got approved for it. I do not know the status of that. I know uh, one center in particular there was a, uh, did, did okay or, or uh, got on board pretty quickly. But at this point, it's really uh, not advisable to look into that as, of course, we are starting to uh, open up again. But uh, if you do want more information about that, please reach out to me at, uh, and just send an email at, to info at ASCpodcast.com. be glad to provide you more information. Sue, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, uh, something that was in Becker's today, I believe. Yep, I, I just, um, I had seen in today's, Becker's ASC review. Um, in a preprint study published on MedRx IV, I believe, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, um, done on resident physicians in New York City, um, 45% of the 340 residency programs reported that at least one resident with um, had COVID-19, um, and that was confirmed, and, and it was a much higher number that were suspected. And 99% of these physicians reported reuse or extended use of N95s, which is something we talk a lot about is the N95s. And 60% felt that the PPE was suboptimal. I know that's no surprise, but just um, some interesting numbers. And they had mentioned the three specialties that were at highest risk of contracting COVID. And I think the first two will not surprise anybody, anesthesiologist and emergency medicine. But the third, ophthalmology physicians. Um, I think that might surprise some people. It's, you know, for one thing, because obviously you're very close to, to the, um, you know, to the mouth of the person when you're, when you're um, looking at their eyes. Um, but also from the American Academy of Ophthalmology, a quote, a recent study from China suggests that up to one-third of people hospitalized with coronavirus experience eye problems such as viral pink eye or conjunctivitis. It's important to note that virus can be spread by touching fluid from an infected person's eyes or from objects that carry the fluid. And, of course, it can go the other way if, you know, somebody's coughing and, and you're near and you don't have your eyes covered, which, of course, people don't walk around with their eyes covered. You know, you, you can get that virus in your eye, and, and there is a slight chance of, um, you know, having some issues that way. Um, and I, we're going to attach a checklist for reopening from the American Academy of Ophthalmology that they suggest for their ophthalmology centers. So, and, and to that point, I'll also, uh, relink our, uh, our checklist for reopening in our, uh, podcast notes, uh, mm-hmm. for this week. We have, 
uh, created a lot of resources for you as you start to reopen. And, and I guess I just need to emphasize this again. And Lori, feel free to jump in. Um, I mean, I know your physicians are putting you under a lot of pressure to uh, to open up, uh, or to, I should probably better to say to open up for elective surgery. A lot of you are are, are still open, you know, doing non elective stuff. Um, but uh, we have to be very careful about this. I, I have spent, I mean, seems like all of last week and so far all of today. Uh, dealing with issues of places that are trying to open up or don't, you know, that the doctors just don't realize that they can't open up, uh, um, you know, quickly. Um, and we've provided a lot of resources uh, on our website. Uh, we have uh, done a, a, a virtual conference, ASC Roadmap to Recovery. Uh, Lori's going to be doing the session um, on uh, Wednesday, which we'll talk about in a second. And I really, uh, really encourage you to... Uh, you know, avail yourself of this resource and make sure that you open up very carefully as we we move forward. Um, anything else on that, Sue? No. So moving on, let's just talk about two states in particular right now, especially New York, because we know we have a lot of listeners from New York, and we know that New York is really in the headlines and, and could very well become a model for other states. Parts of the state are reopening. Um, we were uh, told that we were, that parts of the state would be allowed to reopen for elective procedures. Uh, however, and this is what I've been dealing with for the last week and week and a half, is you might have uh, been told that you can reopen for elective surgery, but we have not been provided the guidance as to what the terms of reopening would be. So at this point, we know that you're going to have to meet certain conditions. For example, there are more likely, most likely going to be testing requirements. There's most likely going to be an attestation that needs to be done. Yes. We're getting uh, background noise. Um, hang on. Can we mute it? I can't see who it is. Okay. Sorry about that. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Guess who's joining us? From Virginia. Um. Christina Benton, are you there? I don't know if you can hear me. I can hear you. <laughs> Hello. That Hello. was the background noise. That was the background noise. <laughs> Welcome, Christina. <laughs> That's great. Hang on, Naira. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll introduce you in a second. But uh, um, anybody else here that I didn't know? <laughs> okay. Nope. Welcome to live podcasting. Um, so, you know, if you are in New York and you, uh, you are in one of those uh, counties that uh, is eligible for reopening, uh, please recognize you really should not be opening for elective procedures until we get that guidance because we know that there will most likely be an attestation. Uh, if the attestation looks at all like the hospital attestation, it's going to be kind of scary. There's a requirement for a certain amount of PPE, and that means that you would have to have this PPE available without accessing the... Um, you know, the, uh, the emergency stockpile. Uh, so uh, please stay tuned for that. We are closely monitored. We are literally monitoring our cell phones right now for when the governor's announcement will come out uh, of what those, uh, those things would be. Laura, you had an update because you were talking in Massachusetts today about uh, their reopening plans. You want to give us an update on what's happening out there? Yeah, the, um, the governor is doing Massachusetts in four phases, um, I think like the rest of the world. Um, and phase one is, is kind of like it is right now, the urgent 
very, very emergent. And that I believe, I don't have the information in front of me because uh, unfortunately I was driving, but um, the, the gist of Massachusetts is that every ASC has to sign an attestation. So similar to New York, where the hospitals had to sign an attestation before they resumed elective procedures um, in Massachusetts, the ASCs also have to sign an attestation. And the big push with that is to make sure that you are claiming that you are um, pretty much only doing uh, emergent or cases that if left unattended would cause further harm to the patient. Um, I don't have the exact words in front of me because I was writing as I was driving, um, but uh, it's, <laughs> it is in all the paperwork that got sent out to the Massachusetts ASCs. There's go, there um, goes my workers' compensation insurance, by the way. <laughs> I, I actually was in this passenger side, I promise. Um, so the whole thing is the fact that um, they are, you know, you as the center are taking that responsibility, making sure that you're saying that we're only doing those that are going to save patients from harm. Um the, the higher risk cases and significant worsening of the condition or a condition. Um, those are the two uh, things. Um, and that um, pretty much, uh, the, they might be able to reopen a little more starting next Monday, the 25th. But again, it's just for those procedures. So if they're not already doing cases today, it's um, suggested that they don't start until next Monday, yeah. but they download the attestation. Although um, if you were a member of the Mass ASC Association, you're going to get it um, and fill it out and send it back to the Department of Health. Now, the other thing that was kind of interesting was the, um, the president of the association on the call had um, informed everybody um, that at one point in the last couple of weeks, DPH came into his facility and all of the medical facilities that happened to be in his building. There, I don't think there's a lot. I've been to his facility before, um, but he's on the second floor of a, of a big, uh, you know, a bigger type complex. Um, but I think they have like physical therapy and stuff like that. And they were walking through to see, Oh, what are you doing? Yeah. How are you set up? How have you done things? So they're out there. Um, he wasn't sure why they came to him. Um, you know, part of me would say, well, because you're the president of the world, um, <laughs> but you know, who knows? So the, the, the big thing is that they're setting guidelines as well for ASC, similar to New York, yeah. um, that you have to have things posted, um, that you have to do certain training. And, and that's where Wednesday comes in, into play. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking on Wednesday will fit into the requirements that the um, least the, that the state's looking for, you know, for your staff and you know, and providers that they're trained on for infection control purposes, social distancing, they want people trained on. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay. Um, you know, so that sort of thing. Um, but they did not spell out. They, um, they did say um, in one of the things, you know, colonoscopies, I know there's a lot of GI centers out there um, that, uh, you know, family history or pre-existing cancers or uh, active bleeding, those are considered, you know, appropriate. Um, routine 10-year screenings, nope. Okay. No, not at this time. 
They really didn't say much about cataracts, um, but, you know, and especially not on high risk, you know, if it's a high risk cataract, you know, you have to document really good why you're doing it. But, um, you know, if I have the cataract to me, it's high risk. But in, you know, if, if I can't as a provider justify it appropriately, you know, so they're going to be looking at that yeah. stuff. Um, and so we know it's, it's going to be the same thing in New York too. It's going to be very, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, he even, um, Greg on the, from the mass, uh, so even spoke to them one-on-one, um, and said, but what about the cataract patient that if we don't take care of it and they fall and they break their hip or they get a brain bleed, um, but they, they current weren't really falling for that. Although, you know, that is a quite a possibility if you're 90 years old and you have yeah. a cataract so now you can't see you it could lead to something much more serious um but total joints if they're elective um nope yeah you know uh it's it's tonsils tonsils and adenoids nope yeah uh ear tubes nope um you know it's like really so they they kind of spell things out a bit um so it looks like actually know. in massachusetts you're less open than uh, New York is. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that the majority yeah. of centers are not opened. Right. Um, if you're multi-specialty, um, kind of like orthopedic based, yeah. you're more than likely open. You know, but very limited. But I think a lot of the GI centers, a lot of the eye centers, are not open at this time. Okay. Plastics, no. You know, pain, no. I, I did want to uh, introduce a dear friend of ours, Christina Benton, who uh, we asked to join us, and uh, we weren't able to uh, touch base with her before uh, uh, we went live here. Um, Christina, welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, no problem. So Christina is the president of uh, CCM. Oh, let me see if I can do this. Coding <laughs> Compliance Management. That sounds good. Oh, there we go. <laughs> And uh, our dear friend Laurie and I uh, and uh, Christina go way back. We're we're old old time drinking buddies. Are we supposed to say that on live podcast? Osmosis. Yeah. And so this is actually a bit of an experiment too, because Christina is joining us from uh, the top of a mountain in. Uh, 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 Oh my Franklin, God. North Carolina. North Carolina, thank you. I was <laughs> it's almost Virginia, John. And the last time we had her on the podcast, she uh, she kind of faded in and out. But it sounds like you got a pretty solid connection today, right? Knock on wood, almost too much. Okay, <laughs> I know. I'm going to have to turn your volume down just a little bit there. Um, so, Christina, actually, uh, well, Christina, uh, welcome. Uh, um, tell me what's going on right now, because coding, of course, never stops. Uh, we talked a little bit the last time about the importance of not letting your people go who are doing your coding and billing. But uh, tell me what's been uh, happening in your world and uh, and how we're how your people are gearing up. Well, it's interesting what Lori mentioned about the pain management because we're seeing a lot of centers that either they're really ramping up on the pain management, people that can't wait yeah. and they're needing their ESIs versus some of the centers that never really unofficially closed and they were always trying to get a day in for pain management. But as far as ramping up, uh, we're almost at hundred percent back to normal, except for one facility from our perspective, the coders are slammed. It seems like everybody's trying to get into this window of opportunity to perform these surgeries, but the facilities are 
performing their due diligence, trying to get these patients tested. Good, good. Ahead of time. Um, but from the coding speak, um, we're just trying to ramp right back up and get back fall back into place with doing our daily her daily responsibilities to the centers. So let's talk uh, a little bit about an upcoming conference that you and I are doing in uh, uh, June, um, June 11th and 12th. Um, ASC podcast with John Gailey and CCM or Coding Compliance Management um, are uh, jointly uh, producing. Um, Hang on, I have it on my screen. The ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar. <laughs> and Correct. You're, you'll be doing the coding, and I'll be doing the finance. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and you switch to the ASC industry. <laughs> oh, man. I have a hard enough time <laughs> doing it with my stuff. <laughs> Watch out, world. Watch out. <laughs> Never be the same. So we do have uh, an update on, on this. Uh, so let me just kind of read you the spiel here. Learn and earn while you travel, without the travel, and join ASC industry experts John Gailey, Christina Benton, and Ann Geyer for this intensive two-day virtual conference with finance, accounting, and revenue cycle aspects explained. ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers face unique challenges in managing the financial aspects of an ASC and understanding the crucial role coding experts play. Our experts will discuss various aspects of finance, accounting, and reimbursement in the ASC setting. It is ideal for anyone interested in understanding basic finance principles as well as those that know finance but want to learn how it differs in an ASC setting. Our experts will also review the ASC reimbursement model to include an overview of the fraud and abuse prevention, coding, documentation, outsourcing, and compliance audits in an ASC setting, as well as the impact coding accuracy has on your organization's financial health. I think there should have been a period in there somewhere. Uh, the good news is this program is approved for 13 hours of AEUs by BASC Provider 2618. Uh, this is for CAS certified administrators. And AAPC CEUs are available for up to 14 CEUs for coding, auditing, compliance, billing, and or certified physician practice manager professionals. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand the last words there pending need for core A, core B, or our specialty CEU requirements? Right. The okay. um, APC, those that need CEUs, they need to check and see what CEUs they need oh, gotcha. um, to fulfill. I got it. Okay. Uh, so for more information and to register, please go to ASCpodcast.com or either uh, CCM's website, which is CCM. What is your website address? My outside address? Uh, yeah, your uh, the uh, the 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 address for your uh, company. Um, it's Franklin, North Carolina. No, no, uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. CCM Pro. CC <laughs> one plus one is two. The dog ran down the street. <laughs> oh, we are going to have so much fun on June eleventh and twelfth. <laughs> People will definitely pay to watch this. <laughs> So I believe what she means is ccmpro.com is the website yes. for that. And, of course, ASCpodcast.com for our company. Oh, we are going to have a lot of fun on that day. Um, we even offered, by the way, uh, team, we actually offered to bring Christina. We weren't sure we were going to be able to get a fast enough Internet connection for her. So we offered to bring her up to Rochester so that all our dogs could meet each other, which would be very interesting, I think. <laughs> we'll never be the same. <laughs> So, uh, so uh, thank you. I mean, I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think one of the things uh, that that is important here is that really, 
um, you know, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of financial impact of uh, the coronavirus on our industry, and uh, you know, I think as uh, we're developing our programs, obviously we're we're trying to deal with um, um, the uh, uh, you know helping people to understand financially. Uh, you know, what happens in ambulatory surgery center, especially for nurse managers. I think a lot of nurse managers, you know, come to it with very little uh, expertise in um, uh, ambulatory surgery and, or in, in finance. And I think that's definitely something that we're going to uh, uh, be very helpful in explaining. But also, um, you know, trying to discuss some of the financial um, uh, you know, some of the things that specifically we're going to have to deal with over the next uh, six to 12 months, I think it'll even be longer as a result of this. So definitely, I, I think this, uh, this conference is coming in at a very timely basis. The other thing that'll be helpful is that the uh, uh, CASC review course, unfortunately, had to be canceled because we couldn't, couldn't pull that off virtually. Uh, and one of the sections of the CASC review class included education on finance and accounting. Um, so this will, will hopefully help uh, all of the uh, the people that are looking to to uh, go and get their CAST certification to at least pick up that portion of it. Any other thoughts there, Christina? I think it will be a good opportunity for the those that are new and those that are the experts to be able to just even pulling in your CEUs and AEUs without having to do the trouble and worry yeah. about the environment that we're in now. But these managers need to know enough about the reimbursement piece and really be able to do a, a dig deep within our conference so that they can question and they can do their own self audits right. going forward. Well said. Um, don't miss it. Please don't. <laughs> Again, <laughs> ASCPodcast.com, CCMPro.com. Uh, sign up for it. And I noticed that uh, we've... Um, we're getting people signing up. I, I've got emails coming in left and right here. I don't know what the heck's going on. It's distracting, so I apologize. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about in-services for a minute uh, that you should be doing for your staff during this difficult time. I had an interesting conversation this morning with a former client of ours. Uh, some, they're, they're currently clients. They just, uh, they're one of those clients that hires us periodically you know, when they need help, but they're not a retainer-based client. Um, and I was mentioning the importance of kind of uh, of uh, updating your staff on a regular basis, preparing them uh, for starting up elective surgery, and that you really should be having ASC or uh, in services specific to COVID nineteen. And um, and this individual said, "Oh yeah, I'm, we've been doing it all along." And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh boy, um, you know, without bringing experts in that really understand this, I'm not sure that that's going to uh, be uh, totally appropriate." So be very careful. Uh, to make sure that you are keeping up with this. As Lori indicated, is happening in Massachusetts. I'm sure it's going to happen in New York, too, where we're going to see surveyors kind of showing up unannounced just to double-check to make sure that we are taking the precautions that we need to be taking. And, of course, you know, Triple H C, Joint Commission, Quad ASF, all of those other surveyors are going to be very, uh, very active uh, looking into every nick and cranny in your organization to make sure that you're following up on all the, the infection control requirements. Lori, why don't you tell us a little bit about, we've you've got a session next week. So, uh, I mean, obviously we can offer it for you. We'd be, uh, we're going to record it live on Wednesday, but uh, if, if, it, if, if you decide not to, to use our training, why don't you kind of give them an update on the type of training that they should be, what we're going to offer, and also recognizing that this is the type of training that you absolutely need to be giving to your staff, whether we offer it or, or you get it elsewhere. Well, <clears throat> thanks, John. Um, 
I have in front of me the the governor's uh, thing from Massachusetts, and I'm sure Jenna has memorized the uh, governor of New York. But um, the things that uh, they're going to be looking for and what they're expecting for staff, especially with um, training, is they want all your staff um, trained. And staff also includes providers regarding social distancing, um, regarding... Lori, let's ID. just back up one second. That phrase that you just <laughs> kind of threw away is extremely important in that oh. we need to remember that when we're talking training staff, it's, it's important to train your providers, that is your credentialed individuals, as your uh, as your employees also. We can't, I can't stress that enough. If, if anything, perhaps even more so because... You know, you know, because they're, they're a lot closer to the patient than we are. Well, and the other thing, too, is your front desk, you know, your, your front desk staff or your reception people are also going to be training whoever's coming into the reception area that if they say they come in and they sign, you know, the, their sign-in or their, their forms, they're going to train them to do hand hygiene. They're going to be encouraging them. Oh, don't forget to, to use the, um, you know, the alcohol wipe or whatever, um, after they put the pen down, you know, so it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of training on that, but they're, um, what this, what the states want, what the DPHs want is that, um, everyone, um, understands the, uh, hygiene protocols that you have in place. So that's going to be your hand washing. Um, we're going to talk about, um, your, uh, frequently touched surfaces because they're going to be looking for that and see if you have something um, in place. Uh, how often are you cleaning um, uh, areas, restrooms, doorknobs, uh, even your nursing station phones, the keyboards, how many people are on the keyboards? Are they doing some, you know, proper hygiene after they've used the keyboards, just things like that in general that we don't ever think about. Um, they're gonna, uh, we're going to talk uh, a bit about, you know, your processing department and things that they have to be aware of, um, and that you have to wear your PPE. It's not because, you know, you don't feel like it, um, and what the PPE is required for the job that they happen to be doing. And when they're doing their cleaning in their departments, how, how do they go about it? You know, starting from top to bottom, clean to dirty, um, stuff like that. We're also going to talk about, um, the clinical areas, pre-op, PACU, your procedure rooms, your ORs, um, and also discussing ways to eliminate clutter because if it's out, it has to be cleaned. So, you know, it's something that we don't always think about. You know, we're used to maybe having our um, IV setups at the, at the bay. Well, that's really not a good idea anymore, is it? Because we'd have to clean everything in that container or, or whatever if it's not a closed environment um, between patients. Uh, so it's, it's a lot to, to consider. So we're going to be talking about that. And then again, the big, big push with the PPE and, you know, the proper way of putting it on and putting it off. When do you wear it? When do you not wear it? Um, you know, double gloving versus single gloving masks. Oh, I don't even like masks anymore. I hate them. Yeah, you we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Jen is already yeah, cringing. I was hoping that would be my please don't <laughs> talk about masks moment. Um, but it, it's just things like that. And also you're going to want to set up something with your environmental um, cleaning people, whether they're employed or if they are um, 
someone that you have hired in, that they have a checklist or that they are showing evidence that they've been trained on your products, how you want things done and that they are doing it. So usually the best way is a checklist, but, you know, just stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's going to be generic because everybody centers different. So we're going to try to hit all the high areas so that, you know, it can be used internally. And if you want to get more, you know, deeper down, you can, but at least you have that um, documentation that if DPH comes in, yes, here's our list. Here's the training that we provided. Because if you just say we did it, you want to make sure that it's documented that you did it and that your staff have signed off on it. So um, this is an easy way than you coming up, you meaning you, the center leadership or, or the infection control person or whomever um, coming up with these particular training sessions because you know, if it's written up in a proper way, then they're going to believe that it was done appropriately. Um, and you're more apt to do it appropriately if it's presented in a concise method instead of off the top of our heads, which I, I like to live on myself. But, you know, but that's, that's for the infection control and your um, social distancing and traffic flow and all that good stuff. And, and yeah, the doctors definitely you know, or if you do have a regular sales rep come in, or if you do have a regular PA or... That very good point is that we need to have some very good policies in place as to how we treat people that are coming in that had not gone through that training. It's not reasonable to assume we can train them, but if they're coming in, there's going to have to be some type of uh, something that you provide to them or a conversation you have with them before they go into the operating room. By the way, it's not a really good idea for them to go into the operating room anyway. If you can avoid no, it. Not these days. No, if you can limit them to not come unless it's extremely important and can be justified, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't invite anybody in at this time until, you know, we're all back to, you know, coughing on each other. Right. But I think that's going to be a oh, far, far, nice? <laughs> far, far away. You know. Jenna, uh, do you have any other observations? You've been working on the in-service stuff, too. Well, at least keeping your employee, your clients up to date on that. Sorry, dealing with the client issue. <laughs> I know. Um, I've been watching because I, Jenna and I are texting back and forth as this is going on. So <laughs> go on. Um, definitely for in-services. I know, you know, a lot of my centers had, um, well, I had a, a big mix, but uh, the couple of my centers that have remained open completely have been doing little in-services all along as things changed. But then I also have a lot of my centers that had closed down completely. So they're, um, their employees are back probably with whatever knowledge we gave them, you know, in the beginning of March, which a lot of things have changed in two months. Yeah. Um, so definitely all of those people need um, education on, like Lori said, all the infection control things, especially things have changed. Um, as we start, um, most likely our centers will be doing some sort of testing. Um, once there's a clear wave test that, you know, we can actually get in our centers, um, they'll have to get trained on that. Um, it, if we do clear wave testing in the centers, um, we'll have to get trained on that and do competencies on that, like any other clear wave test, or if they're going to be collecting the specimens and sending it out to the labs. Um, I know some of my centers, the ones that are open currently, um, they're collecting the specimens at the office and sending them out. But I know other centers are working on putting together a program to test um, at the center or in tents outside of the center 
um, preoperatively. So again, those tests still need, the staff will have to be trained on how to collect those specimens and what PPE to wear. Um, and then everyone's gonna need to be, once your center determines how they're gonna um, supply PPE to all their staff, you know, it's gonna be different for OR and um, pre-op and PACU and reception area and business office. Um, they're gonna all need to get training on how to wear that stuff. I mean, your business office probably has never had to wear masks before. Right. So um, knowing how to properly wear a mask there. Um, other things that have changed, you know, any other things that have changed at your center in the past two months, you know, your social distancing, like Lori talked about. Um, don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but. Well, and we're going to talk in a few seconds about the challenges that uh, we've seen as places are starting to reopen. Let's talk, oh, I hate to do this, but let's talk about the N95 masks for a second. Um, we get more questions about N95 masks. Let's let's also start, let's kind of get one thing out of the way pretty quickly. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the KN95 masks. I think everybody knows by now the KN95 masks are not FDA approved. They're really not appropriate. Um, I, I mean, I guess they could be used as, I just don't know why you would do this, as a, um, um, a mask for... Um, uh, like you would uh, just uh, in public to uh, uh, um, cover your uh, uh, mouth or mouth and nose, you know, so that you don't spread things. But it, they really can't be relied upon as a non-FDA approved product. Yeah, don't rely on them as a respirator. Correct. That's what. Good, I, thank you. That's a good way to say. You're it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so let's let's remind everybody of if you do decide. Now, okay, let's dispel one thing. There are There is no firm guidance from any um, state, at least to, to our knowledge right now, I guess I probably, there's no, there is no consistent knowledge, certainly at a federal level, and at a state level, it's very individual to the state as to whether to be using N95 masks in your organization. We do expect to see uh, some guidance in New York uh, to this effect, but uh, at, at this point, we don't have it. Uh, but if you do decide to use them, you have to fit test this. And and I, I know places are saying, well, perhaps they'll, we'll get off because this is an emergency and it's better to use an unfit mask, unfit tested mask than none at all. The problem with that logic is that OSHA requires you, if you're going to use an N95 mask, to have it fit tested. If you don't do that, you're in violation of OSHA requirements. And as we all know, OSHA levies some very significant fines on organizations that don't follow the OSHA requirements. And there's also a medical evaluation that I think a lot of people forget so, about. So, Jen, why don't you kind of quickly run through those requirements? Or Lori, whoever. Uh, That's feels... it, Jen. <laughs> Take it away, baby cakes. So you have to do a medical evaluation on all of the staff. That can either be done at your center by a physician or um professionally licensed healthcare provider. The OSHA has a specific guidance of it. Um, many people have asked whether a nurse can do this and many people have gotten wishy-washy answers from <laughs> OSHA. It sounds like it's very dependent on your state and what your um, scope of practice is, but you can delegate parts of it to a nurse and then have the doctor be the one. So the nurse can be like the one to give the test give the paper, the form out, collect it. Um, 
and kind of do a preliminary review so that she can kind of point out, like, I know what my one center is doing is having the nurse manager kind of facilitate everything. Um, and then having, uh, you know, so especially because if everything is no on that questionnaire, you're pretty much good to go. Um, so she can kind of like split up the ones that they're, everyone's going to be okay to be, uh, to wear the N95 versus the ones who might need some further evaluation. And then the doctor is probably the one uh, who should sign off on it. Now you can also outsource this. Um, a lot of, um, there's a lot of companies out there that will do, um, actually there's one you can even do online. Uh, I think 3M even has, you know, if you're using the 3M mask, they even have a availability to do it online. I think it's kind of expensive. Um, or in any of the outsourced like occupational health um, facilities or urgent cares a lot of times do outsourced occupational health. Um, you can have uh, those do your uh, medical evaluations uh, if you're not comfortable doing them in-house. Jenna, um, Sorry. Yeah, we have a question. Sorry, I have a question. I also wanted to know if you would comment on, I know I've had a couple questions from people wondering if, I guess there's some wording in OSHA about an employer not being able to see medical records. So I've had a couple of people that have thought, well, if the doctor owns the center or is in the, you know, on the board, can they see it? But it's really, as long as I can't really speak exactly followed. to OSHA, but my mm -hmm. thoughts are if you're already maintaining, and I think Lori has the same mm -hmm. And if, if you're already maintaining a confidential medical health file on an employee, I, I don't really see the difference between this medical evaluation and, you know, in New York State, we have to do H&Ps on all of our new staff and mm -hmm. annual health um, assessments. I, yeah, I don't see the difference between that and this. Yeah. I agree. And as a matter of fact, that assessment looks uh, somewhat similar to the New York State assessment. Mm -hmm. um, a little more intense, but okay. uh, but still very similar. And I guess that's the point I need to make here is that, uh, again, uh, you have to take all of these steps, even if you just have an N95 mask in your in-house. So it's not even so much a matter of using it or not. Uh, by the way, I, if anybody's watching, Sue is swatting away. We've got this uh, fruit flies. I don't know where they suddenly appeared. But they're going all across my screen too. <laughs> so we're not we're not swatting at we're anybody. Not um, dancing or anything. And and. Um, and then the last thing you might want to, well, actually, we have another question before we get to the last yep. thing. Yep. Um, what about anesthesia that is contracted to work in your facility? Does their group provide the fit testing or does the ASC provide the fit testing? Right. Um, um, I'm pretty sure that anything that you provide in your center, you're responsible for. Just like you have to provide them with the anesthesia machine, you have to provide them with the anesthesia drugs, you'd have to, and the PPE and everything, you would, you would be doing this as well. If they are fit tested elsewhere and they ha are using the same exact um, mass that you have at your center, then you can use that form as long as it's within the year, but it has to be an identical mask. It has to be the same, same manufacturer, manufacturer, same model, same size, same everything. If, you're, if your center purchased the exact same mask as what they are fit tested for at another facility, that's acceptable. I'll tell you something. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because you're taking responsibility for somebody else who did that fit testing. Uh, I, I guess a, a flip side of this, what happens if they take our fit testing and use it at another organization? I'm hoping nobody's going to come back at us if something went wrong for that fit testing. 
You see where I'm coming from? Yeah, but OSHA does allow. Um, yeah, OSHA allows it. Okay. You know, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever you want to do. Okay. So don't again, give them, don't give them the pa- the paperwork if you're doing the fit testing. Just say, nope, sorry, it's mine. Understood. Mine. <laughs> okay. Well, you, so you again, the, to, the thing is, it's got to be the same model, same brand, same size. Identical. Identical. Okay. Hopefully that answers that question. Um, and then uh, this was the uh, the other big thing that came out of it is the respiratory program. Do you want to? Oh, wait, so we haven't finished though the oh, I'm sorry. fit testing requirement. So we talked about medical evaluation, fit testing. And again, so they did waive the annual requirement. So if your center was already doing fit testing on, um, on N95s previously, they did waive the requirement for annual fit testing. Um, there was one thing that kind of gave you a little bit of a... Um, out if, there, if there's absolutely no way that you could get fit testing. But again, Lori and I kind of had the opinion, you better document that you tried really, really hard to get that fit testing that you, you know, searched every site, they were all back ordered until July that you've called every urgent care facility that, you know, does outsource fit testing and couldn't get your employees in there. Um, I, Cause I, you're really leaving yourself at risk if you don't have that documentation of the testing. Agreed, Lori. Um, Oh, sorry, keep going, sweetie. You're doing great. um, And then I I have got the question a couple of times, who can do the fit testing? So um, there's no special like certification or anything you need to do the fit testing. Um, You can buy the kit um, through, you know, I I know, one of my centers recently bought one and she got it through her normal um, vendor. Um, and it came with a video on, tra- you know, to train her how to do it. It came with clear instructions. Um, and uh, so she was able to do all of her employees, I think this last week. Um, and, uh, you know, so you can do it yourself. Uh, you can outsource it again. So I know Again, the urgent cares that do the occupational health services um, often offer that. Some centers have been able to help have their hospital help them with it. Um, some centers have had the local county health department um, help with it. So, you know, call around and ask. Um, the other thing that I found, um, at least in the New York City area, was that there was like a mobile um, unit that you could bring out or mobile service to do fit testing. And then a lot of the um, providers that did either CPR or ACLS training, they also had N95 fit testing services. So, you know, just kind of, you know, simple Google search can get you very far in your area. Um, Find out what's available. Um, Anything else to add on that, Lori? No, not on, not on that, on the fit testing. Mm -mm. Okay. Respiratory program. So in regards to the respiratory program. And again, putting this all in perspective, we're talking about if you are going to be using an N95 mask, these are the requirements. So I'm sorry. That's okay. So in OSHA, um, in there, in, you know, OSHA land, uh, it's, I can give you the numbers, the 1910.134C1. What it says is in any workplace, and that's the key, any workplace where respirators are necessary to protect the health of the employee or whenever respirators are required by the employer, 
the employer shall establish and implement a written respiratory protection program with worksite specific procedures. So yes, you bring a respirator into your home and you expect someone to use it, then you have to have a program. Um, there's better been a tell lot Alex of, of that. Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> good thing he's on the road. Um, he's got so respirator. What we mean is that we have employees that actually have N95s at home, and I guess technically there's a requirement. I, I don't think you should have told anybody that because you know that would put him in, in harm. Um, <laughs> well, we but, do have a respiratory program. Yeah. So there's been a lot of chatter on. Um, you know, That's voluntary ask, yeah. use of the N95. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Get you out of everything. Yeah. So the the whole thing, you know, back and forth in, in um, one state, the OSHA person said, well, you know, it, it could be uh, voluntary or you, so you don't really have to. You know what? No. 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 That guideline says you have to. So either the OSHA person didn't understand the question or just gave a really easy answer because then another um, OSHA person can come in and say, where is it? This, and here's the guy, here's the guideline that says you have to have it. So, you know, you're, you'd be setting yourself up saying, Oh, well, when I called four weeks ago, I don't remember who I talked to. They told me this, if you don't have it in writing that they say, Oh no, we're, we're going to waive it for you. Then go ahead. And, and OSHA is usually, I think federal, I don't think it's state. They have there's sites. both right there is yeah. both. so you yeah. know if the federal guidelines telling you you have to do it and and the state guy says you don't the federal's going to win just because right. it's a higher hierarchy right of, of a higher rule. standard yeah. and that is a good point to make is that if you're in own you you do need to check your own state to make sure that they don't have any additional standards in addition to the federal standards and if those standards are stricter than the the uh, federal standard then they they will uh be what uh, falls into play here. Yeah, so, so these are uh, pretty serious uh, requirements if you are going to be using an N95 mask. And I know that a lot of places uh, are are not necessarily following these guidelines. Please understand the uh, risk that you're taking. Uh, OSHA doesn't fool around. If they find out about it, if somebody turns you into OSHA, which is another, you know, like a whistleblower uh, uh, possibility, uh, you could be finding OSHA inspectors showing up and, and finding you five figures easily, you know, for this. So be very careful. And we do have a, a question. So how can we say we will use the same masks, brands, et cetera, when we are getting what we can from wherever we can? And I think what, if I understand, what I'm you just is have you to probably test. are going to have to fit test it yeah, yourself. fit test yeah. for the particular so one that you have. If, if you have more than one, you may have to right. do, yeah. you know, just follow the If the, the one that you bought or that you're able to get happens to be the same one that they're already fit tested for, then mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about it. The other thing is if you are only getting like, you know, a certain supply of one type of mask and then another supply of another type of mask, mm -hmm. each time you switch to a different brand slash type of N95, you're going to have to separately fit test right. um, them for those different types of masks mm -hmm. you're using. Which really probably wouldn't be all that once, once you've got the fit testing equipment and you're you know, and, and you've run through it. Well, the only problem is going to be if you're outsourcing it, mm -hmm. you probably want to uh, have yes. know right. in advance the other masks that you're going to, if you already have a couple different Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, have it all done. Yeah. Yep. Okay, have we killed the subject of N95s? Not oh, for oh, long, no. I don't I think. So. <laughs> no, we, I guess another point we do need to make is that uh, uh, 
you, you need to rem- remember that if you're doing a procedure, I, I know this is kind of obvious, but I guess it needs to be said. If you're using a mask in a procedure, uh, during a surgical procedure or you know, any type of procedure, um, due to cross-contamination um, requirements, in other words, the, the, the need to, <laughs> I'm tongue-tied today. The need to assure that you don't uh, cross-contaminate anybody else, you have to use a different mask for every single procedure. So now, which means that it's really not reasonable for you to use a, a, an N95 as a procedural mask unless you cover it with a mask that you can throw out in between procedure, uh, between each procedure. Unless you're, re- I mean, yeah, if you're protecting- the best practice would be to use one mask per procedure and then throw it out because it's a single use device. Right. However, under the crisis capacity and the, what's the other term, Lori? Contingent or? Yeah, contingent and- Contingency. Uh, the CDC has put out some guidelines for both contingency and crisis um, capacity yeah, strategies. I think I got the term right there. Um, for use of the mask. So that's what a lot of centers and what hospitals are doing where they're wearing the N95 mask, but they're covering it up. Right. And then changing out um, the cover of it. However, um, that's not the best that's practice. Right. The best practice is to use this, an N95 as a single use device. Right. So let's make this clear. <laughs> if you're going to use an N95, the best practice is to throw it out after every procedure. However, that's not financially a good option for most organizations, and not to mention you're going to go through N95s very quickly. Financial is not an excuse. I know. Well, that's the point. It is an excuse. So if you are going to use an N95 in the procedure room, uh, the better option is to wear it and then cover it completely. It has to be covered completely by uh, a procedural or surgical mask. And, and, and Lori and I will, I think, a head, uh, also a face shield as well over right. that, because then that would help for any splash coming up. But, you know, it's, and, and one of the things to point out is you don't, like, you're not required to wear an N95 mask in operating room. That's something that right. your center has to make the choice mm-hmm. of when right. you're going to use N95s. Right. Yeah. Um, Lori and yeah. I have been debating this all day. <laughs> I'm surprised the two of you are still friends. (laughs) (laughs) They play devil's advocate to each other. (laughs) I'm the bad guy. Trying to give some guidance, and Lori Lori ruins it every time. (laughs) (laughs) So what can I say? (laughs) Well, and I guess that's the point that I want to make here is that our our, uh, viewpoint here is very well thought out. And and I, I can guarantee you, knowing the two of them, that they have considered every angle here. So uh, when we we make these comments, uh, we you know we take them pretty seriously, and I think they are indeed the uh, the best guidance we can give. Right so, now. so Lori, should we take? We, should we talk about all the things that they should take into account when they're deciding about whether or not they need an N95 mask? Oh, sure. Go Very quickly, because we're I'm already an hour. <laughs> it's it, you know think about it. What all the big guys are saying to you is the CDC, the FDA, the American College Virgin, um, AORN, Respirators of America, you know, all those places. If you're doing high risk cases of like head and neck, 
So they say above, above the clavicle. So anything above your shoulders, um, if you're doing intubation or extubation, and even if you, and endoscopy, I mean, it's above your shoulders, um, you know, an upper case, they recommend that you should use an N95. How, you know, so you're when, when you're, when, the, when it is a suspected or known case of COVID, but depending on where you read, like some people consider everyone a suspected case, unless you know, um, even with testing some, like we were reading today, the American College of Surgeons has a little graphic that we were trying to, or one of the articles from the American College of Surgeons had a little graphic on, you know, if you're testing negative positive, and if you're screening negative positive, or no, I think you screen first and then you test negative positive. And if they're negative, um, they said, you know, you can use your normal, um, your normal PPE that you normally use during surgery. However, um, in a little box on the side that said, anytime you're intubating, you should be wearing an N95. So I, we're getting mixed guidance. Um, some centers I know um, that are up and running with the COVID-19 testing are still choosing to wear N95s. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but I think you're gonna, you know, I think it's probably the best practice if it's available to you, you know, just to, to be the safest. However, if you're testing everyone and you're ramping back up to full capacity, I don't know if realistically you're gonna have enough um, N95 masks to be able to do that if everyone's testing negative. So that's gonna be a center, a, a choice that your center has to make. Right, and so, you, you know, you have to figure out what the risks are that, you, that you're taking. Um, just like you're gonna make that list of what cases you're gonna be accepting. Um, what your um, patient uh, criteria is going to be. It's all going to be, they're all, they're all together. They're all intertwined. Um, and then if you decide, yeah, we're going to wear them for all um, upper head um, cases or intubation, um, extubation cases, well then, you know, then you're going to follow those guidelines. Um, and those guidelines are also going to include, you know, keeping people away from the you know, the field during the intubation and all that good stuff. And, you know, you're going to look at your airflow and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it, this is not just a yes or no question or answer. Um, but if you are doing a lot of MAC cases that are from the shoulders down or, um, you know, take into account, you know, I guess if you, when you're able to do cataracts again, I mean, if, if what's being said that, you know, ophthalmologists are the third highest for being um, infected, which does blow my mind since most of them aren't even working right now, um, you know, even in their offices, because it's, you know, non-essential, depending on where you live, obviously, you know, us in the more city areas, are, are, our hands are tied a lot harder than, you know, lovely Christina out in, you know, boondock central. Um, She's not on anymore, by the way, so. Oh, Hugh, thank Insulting God. her is not going to do any good. <laughs> you know, so, you know, every, depending on where you're listening from, it, it, it change, it's different. But, um, you know, so then do they have to wear them, even though those patients are not, they're getting almost no sedation at all? 
Um, so now you really got to think about these things and, and you have to get your physicians involved in making those, um, uh, you know, yes and no's. And then in PACU, if you're bringing out a, a, an ENT patient that's coughing, doesn't that nurse deserve an N95 just like the one that, you know, the person that intubated them because they're getting coughed on in the recovery area. So, you know, you're going to have to really do a little soul searching and a, a lot of consideration on um, the type of cases and then the type of protection that you provide. And what and I would recommend is whatever decision you make, have your source, your references. So if you're going to go off of the American College of Surgeon recommendations or the, mm -hmm. it might be a combination, it's probably going to be a combination of, you know, AORN, um, American College of Surgeons, your own, like I know GI, um, ASGE and some of the other um, GI societies have their own specific guidance to GI cases um, that, you know, you might want to set for GI centers, they might want to cite. Um, whatever, whatever it is that you're deciding as far as your protocol is for PPE, have your citations ready so that if there's a question of it later, you can defend it because there is no clear guidance, right? I mean, there's no clear requirement. Let's put it <laughs> and Jenna, we have a question that is kind of in those lines. Do you know of a risk assessment that you would recommend? We haven't really been doing what, what Lori and I have been saying is you put like your, well, how Not did we talking about it? a formal document so much as. No. Yeah. There's right. no, we, we have like considerations document. and then decision and rationale, I think is kind of okay. what we had separated. So Just you'll kind put of your documenting like, your maps. process. Right. And yeah, include this in your quality process. improvement minutes. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing too is if you, if you are fortunate enough and you decide you're going to take it to the highest level, then you're going to take it to the highest level. So you really don't have to document why you're doing that because right. there is no reason to show that because you're taking it to the highest level. Right. If you're taking it a little bit under, then yeah, you know, have some, have some bones behind your reasoning so that it's not just, well, this is what we decided um, and, and there's no rationale behind it. Um, if you can come up with a good explanation, just like when the physicians are putting in their notes why they deemed this uh, an, an emergent case or, you know, a medically necessary procedure, same thing with your decision on your PPE or your respirator use. I mean, the PPE up into the respirator should all be the same. And the respirator is its own little world. The, all the other PPE should be your basic standard, um, you know, however you want to word it, but that, that PPE should never have changed. I think we just became very complacent in not using it appropriately. And again, I want to welcome everybody to the ASC N95 podcast with John Gailey. So. <laughs> Just can kidding. We make, can we make a, this is the last time we'll have the a, a N95 uh, conversation. Oh, conversation Lord. or else Jenna and Lori are going to start or stop showing up. <laughs> right. Um, I did want to go back. Um, did we talk about uh, SPDs during the in-service section? SPD, uh, making sure that uh, your SPD people are, are fully brought up to speed. I see uh, Judy kind of talk, uh, waving her uh, head there. <laughs> You want to chime in? Somebody chime in. And whether even if they get very busy, whether they're going to need more equipment to avoid immediate use, you yep. know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that. That'll be talked about on Wednesday as well. But, um, yeah, they're, they're 
you have to think about them just because we don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Yeah. Yeah. And be sure to get those competencies, especially if they were furloughed or laid off and they haven't been using the equipment in six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, put them through the specific competencies for that, for those machines, for that equipment to make sure that they feel comfortable. Judy, um, you bring up. I, yeah. I, I think they will be a little overwhelmed right in the beginning. Yeah. yeah I, I want to emphasize again what Judy just said there that uh, if you're off for six to eight weeks, your skill set is going to be um, down a little bit. So I, I would say it's pretty much required that you redo your competencies for everybody in SPD. And if you furloughed your nursing staff, you have to, you know, your even your glucose meter, your, you know, all of the, everything they would have used in those six weeks, not everything is exactly like riding a bike, you know, just to get them. And there, I think there are people, when they do come in to check how we responded to this craziness, people are going to ask those questions. Yeah. And the more you document, the better off you're going to be. And then I'm going to segue into something for you, John, speaking of furloughed staff. Um, so let's say that on Wednesday, people tune in for the infection control training, blah, blah, blah. Are they able to um, forward that, that information to their furloughed staff so they can look at it before they come? Or is that anti-furlough rule? It is anti-furlough rule. If you are, if you are, if you require them to go through training before they come back, that training that it might be done at home would be pay, compensated time. So uh, you know you have to pay them for the hours if they're hourly, and you have to pay them for the day if they're daily. I, I, I don't follow my. I mean, just mm -hmm. you better check with a lawyer if you're not going to pay them. Let's put it. Their salary is the word. You're salary. Thank for. you. Yeah. But can they get a link and then like a couple days? I'm wondering though, hey, getting a link and then a couple days before they come on, start. Doing yeah, as long as they're paid, stuff. even if it's at home. I, I know yeah. a lot of employers are very reluctant to pay people when they're working from home, and there is a reason for that too, because you can't. You know, somebody if somebody gets injured in their home while they're while they're watching, you know, they crane their neck while they're uh, watching yeah. our our our, uh, our training. Uh, technically, that is a workers' compensation claim. But bring so. people in a couple of days early. Yeah, you've got I to agree. get them familiar with. Start cleaning stuff up. Start doing these in services. And, and some of my of centers are doing a combination of bringing, you know, especially the centers that are open for urgent cases, are have been doing a combination of, you know, some days employees are working at home and doing online trainings or meetings or whatnot and then some days they're coming into the center and doing cases so that might be an option too if you're doing kind of a slow start um as you bring people on um yeah. obviously you're going to need to do you know they're going to have to come in a couple days before you actually start surgery to get everything um set up to go okay um Let's just kind of quickly talk about some of the challenges that some of our centers are having as they're uh, reopening. Judy, I just want to kind of have you mention a little bit the mandatory education stuff, um, you know, kind of reminding people that uh, that's coming up. Good idea to kind of get it done before uh, uh, before too long. Especially if, um, if you have people that you want to bring back and you have things for, that they need to do, this is a fabulous time to do mandatory education. Um, even if you weren't actually two year year yet, it hasn't actually been the annual time, it doesn't matter. Because again, these people have been out, out of your building for six weeks. So the more education we get them and, and um, the more time we can use. So especially um, if you're a client of ours and you have the access to the one that we recorded last week, even better. Um, but 
there isn't going to be any um, leniency in the things that need to be done annually. You know, those right. OSHA trainings and the PPE training and the things that you have to do every year, you're still going to have to do every year. Mm -hmm. right. So you have the time now and you have a, a cool resources from, from us. If you want to do it from, a, you know, a video point of view, we have that ready for you. So this is a perfect time. Absolutely perfect time. So that uh, what what Judy's referring to is we did record a, a live uh, mandatory education training. I believe it was was a little more like four and a half sure. hours. I think a little more. Yeah, and I didn't uh, talk too too much. And it is the portion of the mandatory education that is um, what do we call it? Common Core. In other words, all centers would have this this type of training. You're still going to have to supplement this with your individual training on individual policies and procedures and programs. Uh, but this uh, takes care of more than half of, uh, of a lot of the educational programs that you have. And that's available, at, again, at our uh, website at ASCPodcast.com at a very reasonable price. If you're a client of a, uh, Amateur Healthcare Strategies, it is free, of course, because it's included in our regular retainer. Um, I, I did want to kind of briefly bring up, uh, as we are starting to open, there's likely to be in many states like New York and probably Massachusetts and some of the other big states some requirement for testing. And that there's a lot of questions that are asked of us about wave testing and whether uh, those tests can be done in the surgery center. Now, the, the answer to that is uh, there are a number of those tests that have been approved for wave testing. In other words, they can be done in your center under Wait. the, the – no, Go ahead. Four of them. Not many. I, did I say many? I don't know if that's many. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, so there are four tests that are approved. Now, Jen, uh, you might want to mention that some of those, uh, you might be able to do them, but you probably wouldn't have the equipment. Yeah, so three of them require a special um, device to run the specimens that uh, an ASC won't get. And I know for the one test that my one of my nurse managers tried to get, she was told by the um, supplier that uh, they're not allowed to sell it to anyone but hospitals and yeah. maybe urgent cares. Um, right now, at least. And then that same test ended up being the one that FDA came back, I think, this past week and said it's under investigation because of inaccuracy issues. So might have been a good thing that she couldn't get it. Yeah. And that will <laughs> be an ongoing problem it, as you open up. It as is still an approved test, test, though. And I, I don't know. We might end up with half the tests that are on the approval list right now have issues later. Um, yeah. We'll see. They're all, you know, they were all wrapped emergency use authorization. Then they were rapidly, you know, tested and pushed through. Um, so, uh, you know, as more testing gets done with them, they probably will have better, um, a better idea of what the actual accuracy is. Uh, so anyways, there's those, there's three that require the special equipment. There's one that, and those are all molecular tests. Um, if you're in New York state, I know one of the things that we think is going to happen is that when they send out the directive for ASCs, they're going to also require us to do the, um, testing that's required at the hospitals currently. And right. the hospitals right now are required to do molecular tests. There is an antigen test that just came out, I wanna say last week, that's approved for Clio Wave. Um, and I don't know enough about antigen testing. That's that's kind of a newer thing. And I've heard there are some issues with the accuracy of antigen testing. So I, it's an approved Clio Wave test. So if you can get it, great. Um, if you're in New York State, it might not be the best option. If you're going to be 
require, you know, we don't know the requirements yet. So you might, it might not work if you have to do a molecular test. Um, and then the rest of the tests are moderate and high complexity tests that need to be done in a certified lab. So we talked about that on our, our state association meeting today, because um, there was a lot of confusion about collecting the specimen at the stab versus running the test at um, the lab. So if you're collecting the specimen and sending it out to a to a lab, that's fine. And I know some of our some of the centers were talking about setting up tents outside to do some of the testing. Um, but the uh, the CLIA waived testing, there's only those four options where you can actually get the results in your, you, you know, collect the specimen and run the test and get the results right in your center. Does that clear things up? <laughs> <laughs> or does it create more confusion? I think it's about as clear as we can get it right now. So, so. the other challenge that we were hearing about today are the um, varying um, times of getting the results in. Um, I know one of the centers was saying today on the call that they had to cancel a colonoscopy today because they didn't get the test results in time. And I can't imagine that the patient was very happy about it. Well, because they had already yeah. prepped, right? Yeah. 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 So um, uh, depending on, you know, you want to think about the timing. Obviously, you want it as close to the procedure as possible, but you also don't want your test results to not get there in time. So um, that's a conversation you're definitely gonna wanna have with whatever lab you contract with is how fast you're gonna get the test results. I know um, a couple of my centers, they're doing a test that they're doing the test three days ahead of time and their 48 hour turnaround time. So they get the test results the day before. Um, that's uh, and I and the other thing is in New York State for the hospitals they're required to do the test within 72 hours of the procedure, so we don't know. Again, um, that was a hotly discussed topic today on the call because of the issues that people have been having. Is is that 72 hour requirement going to also be required for us? Now I, I do want to make a point here also is that uh, even in situations where I mean if this you know remember the requirement either from a regulatory standpoint to follow regulations or also the community standard. It's going to be interesting, and Laura, you might agree with me or disagree, but community standard is one of those things that develops over time. And if we find that uh, organizations are generally requiring testing, uh, this could become something that um, uh, will will become a, st a community standard that other organizations will be expected to do. Where community standard issues pop up is in lawsuits after the fact. Um, when Laurie and I uh, do uh, legal work, you know, often we have to attest to the community standard in a community, and I think that's one of the challenges that we might have is that those organizations that choose not to do testing given the amount of organizations that are probably going to be required to do it, might find themselves in a situation that if they're not doing that test, they're going to have to stand up for that in court if they get sued. Yeah, they look at what's usual and customary within your, <clears throat> within yeah. your area or your, your you know, patient location. Um, so if four out of five are doing testing and you're not, and there is a an outcome that is, you know, looked at legally, um, they're going to say, well, the other four are. Right. Um, so the, whoever's doing 
the research for that legal case is going to probably be calling all of your friends yeah. <laughs> to find out what you do there. Um, you know, so that, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. So, you know, keep an open communication as well um, with other facilities or other providers in your area to see what, what they are doing. Um, okay, gang, we are uh, um, an hour and 20 minutes into our episode here. Uh, we're going to have to cut some of the uh, items that we had on our uh, agenda here. I did want to get to the PPP program because I think that's something. Uh, needless to say, we, we have a lot of more materials, a lot to talk about. Uh, please visit us at the scpodcast.com website. Please tune in on Wednesday to Lori's program. Um, you know, please listen to our uh, other uh uh, quite long. I mean, all of these things are going long. Just there's so much information to a part. The AC uh, Roadmap to Recovery, for example, that conference, uh, which is available at the acpodcast.com website, uh, uh, gives you a lot of good information on this. But still, things are evolving as we go along. Uh, Zach Calritis, I have him on the line here uh, with us. Poor Zach has uh, <laughs> been waiting to talk about the PPP program, and I'll help you out, Zach, on this. Uh, sure but thing. basically, the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, program uh, was an SBA program that was made available. And uh, actually, you surprised me today, uh, 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 Zach. I didn't realize that um, money's still available in this program. So can you talk a little bit about what's been going on, what we've learned uh, so far today, and then uh, um, I'll follow up. Sure thing. So uh, the SBA released a, uh, an FAQs statement, for Frequently Asked Questions, um, which is fairly in-depth, as I understand. Um, I heard about that actually through an article in Forbes posted last week, and they they went ahead and summarized just some of the main points that the the FAQs went into more detail about. Um, so some of the main points that this article posted uh, pointed out in Forbes were that uh, businesses uh, with a PPP loan that are under two million dollars are still eligible for forgiveness without showing uh, proof of financial hardship. So in other words basically acknowledging that everyone is assumed to be under financial hardship uh, because of COVID-19. Um, there's no longer the requirement to have to prove that in any type of way. Uh, there was more clarity given on partnerships and uh, language about seasonal employees going back uh, for more money. Uh, in other words, if a partnership is structured, uh, if a business is structured as a partnership, uh, this this new guidance uh, had language to include, um, if the loan did not include any compensation for its partners, then the lender may submit a request to increase the PPP loan amount to include the appropriate partner compensation for the partnerships. So in other um, words, if you had, when you initially applied for it, you didn't take into consideration the partner's compensation because of the confusion, mm -hmm. at the initial confusion as to who was eligible, you're able to go back and ask for more money here. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. Yep. So again, just more guidance about that. And then lastly, they pointed out that there is still, uh, according to this, this article, there's still $120 billion left in PPP funding. So they're encouraging businesses if they're still in need to take advantage of that while it's, while it's still available. Good. And we are still waiting for guidance re regarding reporting. In other words, we know there's going to be some reporting requirement. Most likely it will be to the bank. I think what that means is that the government, the SBA might give guidance to the banks as to what, uh, how to report, but the banks will ultimately be responsible for that, as well as the uh, the audit function for that. Mm -hmm. 
what else was I going to say about the SBA? Oh, one of the issues that, that's that been popping up, too, is that uh, people keep asking this question. I think you know by now that if you don't start using the money after you receive it or shortly after you receive it, um, you're not going to be eligible to uh, um, for the forgiveness. So you, in order to be forgiven, you need to use the money for payroll by bringing those individuals that you laid off uh, uh, back to work or keep them on your payroll for the eight-week period after you receive the funding. The question has come up a number of times, oh, I'm not ready to open, so I don't want to hire my employees. And that's perfectly fine. Just recognize that you won't give the full, uh, you will not get the full forgiveness. Um, that still means that you got a loan. It's a low interest loan. It's payable over a two-year period. I think the interest rate is 1%. So it's still not a bad deal to get you through this, but recognize you will have to bring your pay, your, your individual, you will, you will need to bring your employees back in the eight-week period after you receive the funding in order to be able to get the full forgiveness there. And if you don't bring back all of your employees, you will only get a percentage of that forgiven. Did I forget anything? Good to me. I think our, everybody is exhausted right now. I'm looking at the I have a question. Of, sure, sure, go for it. But not about the PPP. Um, so the uh, I just got a copy of the attestation that the uh, Massachusetts ASCs have to fill out before they uh, start doing cases. Um, in that attestation, they are required to <coughs> have designated a compliance leader at the highest level of the organization who's responsible for overseeing ongoing compliance with the standards and criteria outlined in the Department of Health provider reopening guidance. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be something that, you know, you, you people in other about. states may yeah. not have to do yet, but it'd be something to think about um, who you would um, des delegate for that. Because at the start of this form, um, it says that the person um, who's filling it out, who the individual responsible for compliance is either that authorized compliance lead or the CEO. Right. So it's spelled out for them. I don't know if it was like that for the hospitals in New York, but it was the CEO that was certifying right it and or the administrator of record. Yeah. Again, yeah. that certification uh, attestation was very scary in New York. Sounds like yours is very scary too. Mm -hmm. um, and, oh yeah. Uh, it's under penalties of uh, uh, perjury. Perjury. Exactly. Yeah. So again, um, so let's just uh, bring this all to a close uh, since we are uh, an hour and a half into it. And I appreciate everybody's patience and thank you, staff, for everything. Um, but uh, does anybody else have any last minute thoughts? <sighs> Other than we all. Oh, sorry. Decided. That was loud. Thank you all for the support of our podcast. I, I do want to kind of lead out with just a, a comment that uh, we talk a lot about 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 all the stuff that um, you know we make available <clears throat> on the ASCPodcast.com website, all of the free materials, and of course the uh, the virtual conference. Uh, we have uh, Amateur Healthcare Strategies, though the the executive sponsor of the podcast is uh, very much involved on in the day to day activities of uh, regulatory compliance in your organizations, and we are here for you all the time. We've, uh, we've actually picked up quite a number of clients during this time frame because people have realized that this is it, that's just too much work to try to maintain uh, the regulatory compliance while actually taking care of patients, which we know is your primary responsibility. So please understand that we're here for you. Please reach out to me uh, uh, at uh, um, 
what is our info? Info at ah-strategies.com. Or if you can't remember that, just type info at ascpodcast.com. Call me on the phone, 585-594-1167. We'd be glad to uh, uh, to answer your questions and, and help you out because uh, uh, this is uh, this is tough. Um, this, this, you know, there's never been a, as difficult a time frame, I think, for regulatory compliance as it is now. So. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again whenever we decide to do this again, probably in a week. Um, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and see all the benefits of being a, uh, a, a patron. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the <clears> subscribe button. Sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The SC Podcast is uh, with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an education and op is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and our newest sponsor, Intelaire. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. <clears throat> we would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.